Porter Moss was like no one baseball had ever seen, black or white. He stood 5'11", but was a giant when he took the mound, a larger-than-life personality. He had the swagger of Satchel Paige on and off the field, and at his best, he had the strikeout numbers to match. Porter Moss threw from a deadly submariner delivery, his arm dropping so low it dug up the fires of hell and blew it past hitters throughout Negro League's baseball for his hometown Cincinnati Tigers, for the Kansas City Monarchs, for the Chicago American Giants, for the Memphis Red Sox. Porter Moss played in three East-West All-Star games. And folks, as I've always said, there was no sporting event in history like the East-West All-Star game. And if you make it three times, that means you've got the goods. Porter Moss would have certainly played in a fourth East-West All-Star game but he was murdered in the middle of the 1944 season at the age of 34. This is Porter Moss's story, one we can never let die. There is no obituary in the Cincinnati Enquirer for Porter Moss. To that day, he may have been the greatest pitcher the city had ever produced, but there was no record in the local paper of him dying, or for that matter, even living. Most records of Porter Moss come from the same two places as most Negro League stories, through the black press and newspapers like the Pittsburgh Courier, and through the stories told from fathers to sons, teammates to spectators, veterans to historians. Negro League's baseball history is built on oral tradition, not by choice, but by necessity. William Roden. In the white press, we didn't have birthdays. We didn't die. We didn't have, uh, we are these one-dimensional people, you know, and the black press was vital. Former Negro Leaguer and Los Angeles Dodgers outfielder, Sweet Lou Johnson. They had people who televised a snail race in Alaska, but they can't give you nothing on the Negro League. You get a little bit here and a little bit there. And everybody now is trying to be a part of it. Give me a freaking break. Where were you when when it really started? And isn't that the case for everything? When we were ignored, we made sure we were heard. And when we were denied, we made sure we could play. That's all Porter Moss wanted, to live his life and play his game. And that was taken from him bleeding out in an overcrowded train car in rural Tennessee, July 16, 1944. Former Newark Eagle and baseball icon, Don Newcomb. I don't know, and I've been to a lot of countries, I don't know any country better than this country, but this country has a lot it needs to do, as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. to make it the country that, that we like it to be. Mm-hmm. But that hasn't happened yet. And I know I won't live to see it, you won't live to see it, and maybe our kids won't even live to see it. But at least we've made a contribution to their welfare and to give them a stepping stone to do what they need to do with their lives to make it better for somebody else. Porter Moss was born June 10th, 1910, at the beginning of the period called the Great Migration, when the black population of Cincinnati more than tripled from 15,000 to 56,000 as workers fled the South in search of work in the city's factories and warehouses. The city in 1910 was deeply segregated. Look, it still is. 
But 1910 was just 14 years after the Supreme Court's ruling of separate but equal. The court determined that state-ordered segregation laws did not violate the Constitution, as long as facilities for each race were equal in quality. Now, who do you think got to make that determination of whether or not both sides had it the same? Exactly. According to historian Henry Lewis Taylor, in 1910, there was one all-black high school in the city of Cincinnati. At the next count, in 1912, there were seven African-American teachers employed by Cincinnati public schools. The black population of Cincinnati was confined to the poor conditions of the West End. Sure, that's where the factories were, that's where the warehouses were, It made sense to migrate there, but there was no getting out. There was no moving up. In the 1920s, the Cincinnati Real Estate Board mandated that no agent shall rent or sell property to colored people in an established white section or neighborhood, and this inhibition shall be particularly applicable to the hilltops and suburban property. The system was designed to prevent the advancement of the city's black population, and it was working. And all of this to say that nothing, nothing could hold back Porter Moss. He made it out of Cincinnati's West Side. According to his teammate, Verdell Mathis, he earned himself a college education. And in 1932, he made his professional baseball debut with one appearance for the second iteration of the Indianapolis ABCs. It was just one game. He threw five innings and gave up four runs no box score that anyone would have remembered, but still, 22-year-old Porter Moss had arrived. He was a professional ball player. And managing that team? Well, that was the most prolific manager in the history of Negro Leagues baseball, Candy Jim Taylor. Candy Jim Taylor played and managed in the Negro Leagues for 45 years. He managed 12 teams and won 955 games that we know about making him the winningest manager in Negro Leagues baseball history. He won a Negro League pennant in 1928 with the St. Louis Stars and then came back with back-to-back Negro World Series championships in 1943 and 1944 with the Homestead Grays. Candy Jim Taylor, folks, was a master strategist and had a great eye for young talent. And as far as I know, he only missed on one occasion in 1930 when he picked up a kid by the name of Josh Gibson with the Memphis Red Sox and said that he would never be a catcher. Well, even the great ones miss occasionally. Suffice to say, any Candy Jim Taylor team was the big time. But keep in mind, this was 1932 when Porter Moss made his pro debut, the Great Depression. Times were tough for everyone, particularly Negro League players. In fact, Candy Jim's team the following year had to shut down operations and sell the team bus when they ran out of money. So in 1933, Porter Moss took to semi-pro ball back in his hometown of Cincinnati. The Goodyear Shoe Repair Team, a Class A community team that played local community squads. And it was pretty obvious pretty early, that Porter Moss was too good for the Goodyear shoe repair. According to reports in the Cincinnati Inquirer, 
Moss struck out 15 batters in late April and then came back a week later and struck out 15 again. He was throwing smoke from an angle so low, a submarine delivery where his arm would whip low just above the dirt and flash the white of the ball across the red of his socks and the black of his shoe leather. Hitters just couldn't figure out what they were seeing. Porter Moss quickly earned the nickname of Ankle Ball Moss. Said my friend, new Hall of Famer Buck O'Neill in his book, I Was Right on Time, Ankle Ball Moss. That's where that son of a gun threw the ball from, his ankles. I hated to hit against ankle ball. Said former teammate Marlon Pee Wee Carter, during baseball season, he was ankle ball Moss. During basketball season, he was eagle-eyed Moss. When he was hitting the baseball, he was ball-buster Moss. The man could do it all. In 1934, a man named D. Hart Hubbard set out to found his very own Negro Leagues baseball team in Cincinnati. He was a proud product of the city's education system and a college grad himself before he became the first African-American man to ever earn an Olympic gold medal when he won the long jump in 1924. With discarded uniforms handed down from the Cincinnati Reds, Hubbard's squad took the field as the Cincinnati Tigers in the Negro Southern League. And D. Hart Hubbard didn't have to go far to find his star pitcher. Right in his backyard in Cincinnati was Porter Moss. 13 strikeouts against the Louisville Blackcaps. 12 strikeouts against the Baltimore Black Sox. A one-run performance in the finale of the Indiana-Ohio League Elimination Series. Ankleball Moss was just 24 years old, and he was getting it done. He stayed with the Cincinnati Tigers in 1935, and according to the Cincinnati Enquirer, he won 35 of the 39 games he started that year. In 1936, Porter Moss was selected for his first East-West All-Star game. And again, if you are a loyal Black Diamonds listener, I don't need to tell you, the East-West All-Star game was the game said Hall of Fame sports writer Wendell Smith. The big leagues can't even approach the East-West All-Star Game's sparkling splendor. 45,000 Negroes of every color and description give the East-West tilt a flying start. Then, too, it seems that the Negro players take more gambles, are willing to risk more than the major leaguers, all of which makes for a more exciting ball game. There is no sports event in the country that packs more color than the East-West game. And that goes for the annual football classic between the Army and the Navy and the World Series. I'll take the East-West All-Star game in Comiskey Park before 45,000 roaring fans along with the Satchel Pages, Josh Gibsons, and the rest of the black beauties of the seeping baseball world. I mean, how good was the talent at the East-West All-Star game? Porter Moss didn't even get a chance to pitch in his first one because Satchel took over and threw the last three innings for the East by himself. Cool Papa Bell had three hits and a stolen base. Raleigh Biz Mackey went two for two. Josh Gibson scored twice and stole a bag. We're talking about the best of the best. Former All-Star Lou Johnson. I made the All-Star team and I saw 35 or 40,000 black folk dressed Dressed. I just couldn't take my eyes off of. Former All-Star 
John Mule Miles. Oh, man, my eyes just popped that big. And I'm looking all over these big high buildings and, and all these people. And, ooh, I never seen any black people in all my life. <laughs> and you see the picture, that park was crowded with black people. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Like I said, it was fun to me, exciting to me, and I enjoyed it. And right there with them, on the grandest stage, was 26-year-old Ankleball Moss. Funny that Satchel kept Moss off the field in his first East-West All-Star game because there were a lot of similarities between the two. Yeah, yeah, Satchel was bigger, and their deliveries were different, but there was just a presence that the two of them shared. Said Marlon Carter to the Cincinnati Inquirer, Porter was the life of the ball club on and off the field. When other teams came to town, Porter would go over to their hotel and tell them what he was going to do to them the next day when he was pitching. They said, ain't bragging if you can do it. Well, he wasn't bragging. And anytime you draw the comparison to the legendary Leroy Satchel Page, you're pretty doggone special. And Porter Moss was indeed pretty doggone special. Porter Moss came back in 1937 posted a 2.99 ERA on the season and made his second East-West All-Star team and his first actual appearance in the game. Pitching for the West, this time in relief of Hall of Famer Hilton Smith, he threw six innings and allowed just one earned run but lost the game. That winter, the Cincinnati Tigers were sold to the owners of the Memphis Red Sox and the team itself was disbanded. Porter Moss stayed on with the Memphis Red Sox, though, and relocated to Tennessee. It would be the last professional baseball team he'd ever played for. Originally founded by a local barber in Memphis as a way to promote his business, the Memphis Red Sox were a storied franchise in Negro Leagues baseball, operating for an unheard of 39 consecutive seasons from 1921 through 1959. With Porter Moss, they won their first and only Negro American League championship in 1938 with a series sweep of the Atlanta Black Crackers. Well, it was somewhat of a sweep. The Red Sox won the first two games of the series with Porter Moss throwing a complete game for the victory in game two. Then game three was a forfeit when the Black Crackers showed up for the ballpark late. And the rest of the series was canceled when the Atlanta Stadium got double booked with a white minor league team, so technically a sweep. Porter Moss was elected to his third East-West All-Star game that year, but did not play. And he'd make his fourth team the following year in 1939, and again did not play. 39 would ultimately be Moss's worst career season statistically, and he'd spend 1940 away from the Red Sox traveling to Cuba. While he was gone, ownership of the Memphis Red Sox changed in a manner that serves as a stark reminder of the times. The Red Sox were owned by J.B. Martin and his two brothers. Politically, they leaned Republican by the definition of Republican in 1940, which was well on its way to changing. At the time, the city of Memphis was essentially run from the shadows by its former mayor, a Democrat by the name of Edward Crump. Crump had tremendous influence in the state and had built a political machine that, on one hand, made Memphis one of the largest southern cities to allow black residents to vote. 
See, Black Americans at the time had been guaranteed the right to vote under the 14th Amendment in 1868. But we know it wasn't that simple. For over 100 years, local governments, particularly in the South, constantly created barriers to the Black vote from enacting poll taxes and mandating literacy tests to just ruling with outright violence and intimidation. Practices that continue through both the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the Civil Rights Act of 1968. And to some degree, in some places, it never stopped. But some argued that allowing the Black vote in Memphis was merely a political move by Trump as he needed all of the allies he could find. His policies still relied heavily on the exploitation of non-organized Black labor, and his city still remained extremely segregated. They even went as far as to famously ban movies in the city that depicted Black and white actors together. This is all to say, Memphis Red Sox owner J.B. Martin made an enemy of Edward Crump in late 1940 as Martin began sponsoring rallies for Republican politicians in the area, Crump's opponent, Memphis police began stationing officers outside of Martin's drugstores, stopping and frisking all customers. They claimed that Martin was selling narcotics and even went as far as to search a priest. The African-American community of Memphis got angry. An editorial in the Memphis World claimed that the unreasonable searches conducted by Memphis police were akin to the acts of Hitler's Gestapo. But the harassment continued, and in November of 1940, Martin was forced to sell his stake in the Red Sox and leave Memphis. But as Martin exited Memphis, Porter Moss returned to the Red Sox in 1941, reinvigorated, resurgent. In September, Moss threw a complete game one-hit shutout with 11 strikeouts against a New York Black Yankees team that featured the great Mule Suttles. 1942 would be even better as Ankleball dropped his ERA down to 2.95 for the season and returned to the East-West All-Star Game once again relieving Hilton Smith. He then made it back to the East-West All-Star Game in 1943, and Porter Moss had never thrown better. In 1943 alone, he threw two no-hitters in exhibition games, once against the New York Black Yankees and the other against his hometown, Cincinnati Clowns. So in the 1943 East-West All-Star Game, Moss drew the prime assignment. With two outs in the ninth inning, a 2-1 lead for the West and runners on first and second for the East, manager Frank Duncan called on Porter Moss to record the final out. But that final batter was no easy task. This was the East-West All-Star Game, and there were no easy outs. Standing at the plate in front of Porter Moss was six-time All-Star Vicious Vic Harris of the eventual league champions, the Homestead Grays. That's right, Candy Jim Taylor's Homestead Grays. Vic Harris was a career 305 hitter, and in 1943, he was 38 years old, but as strong as ever. I mean, he hit 358 that year. And all he needed against Porter Moss was a single. Pitch number one. Ted Double Duty Radcliffe throws down the signs behind the plate. Porter Moss winds and fires from that low, low slot. 
nearly scraping the dirt off the mound as he delivers it home. No swing. Vic Harris wants a better one. Pitch number two. Porter Moss winds again, fires again, fastball whizzing past his ankles and out of his hand toward the plate. The veteran Vic Harris, vicious Vic, valiant Victor, grinds his hands into the dirty ash wood and rips the bat off his shoulder and toward the ball. Fly ball, straight over the head of Porter Moss to deep center field. And maybe it would have been trouble for another outfielder, but that's Hall of Famer Willard Brown in center field. And he's positioned himself in the exact right spot. Without moving three steps, it settles right into his glove. The West All-Stars win the game two to one. Porter Moss is the hero. He gets mobbed by his teammates on the field in front of a roaring 51,000 plus at Comiskey Park. Wendell Smith's headline in the Pittsburgh Courier reads, Pitcher's star as the West beats East in Thriller. Once again, the sun shines brightly on the baseball front in the rugged Golden West. And that was Porter Moss's last All-Star game. One thing to remember about Negro Leagues baseball in 1944 is that the most important members of the team, of any team, might not have been a player. It might have been the team bus. You see, in the Negro Leagues, you played where you could play. You traveled to where the game was, where the money was. And if that meant packing it and traveling two days across the country for some action, well, you were just hitting the road. If you couldn't get a train ticket because you were black, well, the bus had your back. If the restaurants wouldn't let you inside to eat because you were black, well, the bus gave you a seat. And if the hotels wouldn't give you a place to sleep because you were black, well, the bus put a roof over your head. John Miles. Toledo, Ohio to Memphis, Tennessee. We rode for two days and got out there Sunday morning. We got in about four o'clock that morning and we played a doubleheader in Memphis, Tennessee. Then that was the longest trip I ever can recall because we didn't stop in a hotel. We couldn't even wait on the hotel. We ate on the bus and we kept driving and riding and sleeping on the bus. We go to the grocery store, get a, a sandwich, a can of sardines or something. Former Negro Leaguer Stanley Glenn. There were only certain hotels that you were going to be allowed in, and you had to find a place to eat. It was difficult. I wouldn't change a thing. I would do it all over again. But we didn't have the hotels that we could stay in, the restaurants that you could eat in. I ate in the bus as much as I ate in the restaurant. Former Negro Leaguer Ernest Burke, courtesy of the University of Baltimore. Travel conditions, it was bad because we went to a small town, especially a southern town, and pulled up to a gas station or something like that, they would come out and said, what do you niggers want here? And we said, we want gas. And they tell us to pull over to the side. We'll get you in a minute. And I can remember one time we stayed at a service station almost two hours before he came out and said, you niggers back the bus up here and I'll give you some gas. And we had a bus. And it's hold 30 or 40 gallon of gas. And we asked him to fill the tank up. He said, well, I'll give you five gallon of gas and get your ass out of here. We don't want you niggers down here anyway. That sort of thing. You know, you have to hold your tongue for people to come up and say things like that to you. I mean, it's really something else. 
I could never believe that people would be so harsh and so so evil against another man because of the color of his skin. Former Negro leaguer Ron Teasley. We were traveling through the South for a series of games against the Chicago Brown Bombers who traveled in limousines. And they were stopped in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And one of the players didn't say, sir. And the police pounced, jumped on them and uh, started beating them with their clubs. So that was, so the travel was rather difficult. Without that bus, the realities of the American South in the 1940s became even realer. And on July 15, 1944, the Memphis Red Sox team bus broke down. Now, this wouldn't be the first time. Teammates Verdell Mathis and Marlon Carter told the following story to Dr. Kurt McBee for the University of Memphis. While traveling through the Ozark Mountains from Little Rock en route to Kansas City, the team encountered bus difficulties. Bus driver Sam Thomas failed to place the transmission in a low enough gear to safely descend the hill. The bus picked up speed going down the hill at a speed of approximately 65 miles per hour as the bus neared a narrow bridge. Verdell Mathis positioned himself near the bus door, ignoring teammate cries of, don't jump lefty, don't jump lefty. Mathis did jump out. Once the bus had safely cleared the bridge, his teammates rushed back to find Mathis with severe lacerations on his hands, face, and behind. The extent of the injuries was so bad that he had to lie on his stomach. Unable to find a black doctor, they took Mathis to a white doctor in Missouri. The doctor refused to treat him because he was black, and Mathis was forced to wait until their arrival in Kansas City hours later before he received treatment. The Memphis Red Sox were traveling westbound through Tennessee heading back to Memphis to get back on the field the next day when the engine gave out, said Verdell Mathis to the Cincinnati Inquirer in 1993. That wasn't the first time that it happened, but this time the bus driver couldn't fix it, and we had a doubleheader coming up quick on Sunday afternoon. And with no other option, the Memphis Red Sox boarded a train in McEwen, Tennessee, to finish the trip. It was hot that night. Memphis in July hot. And that's just the open air, not inside of a packed train car. See, the Red Sox were shoved into what was called the Jim Crow car, an infamous train that ran through Tennessee and Kentucky in the early 20th century with two legally mandated sections, one car for white passengers, one car for black passengers, packed so tight it was standing room only. And if white passengers got too drunk, well, then they just threw them in with the black passengers. The train was crowded, said Verdell Mathis. We finally got on, and they stuck us near the engine. That's where they put the black people. They figured if something was going to happen, it most likely was going to happen to the engine. And that means we'd get hit next. They were shoulder to shoulder standing in the aisles and sitting on armrests. They were hot. They were sweating. And they just wanted to get home to play ball. And most of them would. Soon after the train got moving, a 30-year-old Tennessee man named Johnny Easley began to raise his voice in the car. He was drunk, 
And according to the Atlanta Daily World, demanding the men of the car join him in a dice game and harassing numerous young women near Port of Moss. Ferdell Mathis recalled to the Cincinnati Inquirer. Moss said, why don't you go and sit down and leave these women alone? Well, this guy didn't like that, but he didn't say anything and he got up and walked to the back of the car. I was glad to see him go because I just said to my buddy, Larry Brown, this guy is packing a pistol. Porter got up, not to follow the guy, but to go back and talk to some of our guys who were standing between the cars. Next thing you know, an argument starts up and guys start backing up. One of our guys, a second baseman named Fred Bankhead, kicked at the guy, but he missed. Right about then, the train pulled into the next station. When the train came to a stop, this guy jumped off, wheeled, and fired a shot that just missed the conductor and hit Moss right under his heart. Moss was in a lot of pain. We carried him to the baggage department and laid him down. At about one o'clock Sunday morning, 50 miles outside of Nashville, Porter Moss lay bleeding in the dark on that dirty train car floor. The bullet had entered the left side of his abdomen, perforated his large intestine, and lodged itself against his spine. Johnny easily ran off, and the Memphis Red Sox scrambled to save their teammate's life. Traveling through rural Tennessee, their only hope was a doctor at the next station. There was none. But one stop later, there was. A white doctor boarded the train, equipment in hand, to treat a white passenger who had been injured in an unrelated fight in a separate car. Once again, he refused to treat Porter Moss, the man slowly dying of internal bleeding on the floor in front of him because of the color of his skin. He refused to treat a black man, and he left Porter Moss to die. Said Verdell Mathis, he said he wouldn't treat Moss because he was colored. We had to go on to the next stop in Jackson, Tennessee, where there was an ambulance waiting for us. It was an hour farther down the line. By then, Moss had lost too much blood. Two of the players stayed with Moss at the hospital in Jackson, Tennessee, while the rest of the team went on to Memphis for their doubleheader the following day. Doctors operated, but it was too late. And Porter Moss died at approximately 4 p.m. on July 16, 1944, leaving behind his wife, Artie, and a grieving team. News came to the Red Sox between games of their Sunday doubleheader. Fans stood at attention for a full minute in tribute. The teams did not play the second game. Johnny Easley was apprehended by police after a brief manhunt. He was brought to trial in Camden, Tennessee in October of 1944. Five Red Sox players were brought in as witnesses but never were given the chance to testify. Easily pleaded guilty to second-degree murder, and the trial lasted less than two hours. Easley's sentence? Ten years. Said Verdell Mathis, 
The police finally caught up with the guy who shot Porter Moss. And when he was convicted, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. That's better than Moss got. Moss was a college-educated man, had a fine life in front of him. If the bus hadn't broken down, if that drunken guy wasn't on it, if Moss weren't standing there, if the doctor had tended to him, that's a lot of ifs. But you miss a guy like that. That's what you miss the most out of playing ball after all these years. The guys, the good times, the camaraderie, just like the white ball players say. It's the same for us. Moss was at the center of it all. He was the best of it all. I've never met anybody like him. I don't expect I ever will. The story of Porter Moss is an almost unimaginable story to believe. But the story of Porter Moss happened far too often during that time. And it has happened far too often in present-day times. It certainly is akin in its own way, despite the stark differences in how it happened to what we witnessed two years ago with the murder of George Floyd. It takes me back to think about the story of the murder of John Donaldson's father in Glasgow, Missouri. And the fact that years later, that same predominantly white town, Glasgow, Missouri, would honor John Donaldson with a life-size statue, actually a larger-than-life-size statue, and name a baseball complex for him there in his native Glasgow almost 100 years after his father was murdered by Glasgow police. These stories are all very eerily similar. And what it has done, it has now moved the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum into a space that we felt we were in all along, but people have started to identify the fact that this museum is a social justice museum. It is a civil rights museum. It's seen through the lens of baseball. And it is triumphant in nature. But there are these episodes, like this one of Porter Moss and the story of the murder of John Donaldson's father, that reminds us that we've grown a lot in this society. We still have work to do. We have a lot of work to do as it relates to race relations in this country. And it is my hope that this museum serves to help people understand and embrace the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how they are pillars to build a bridge toward tolerance and respect. The story of Porter Moss could have very easily been the story of Bob Kendrick, not from an athletic standpoint, but it takes me back to my childhood, growing up in Crawfordville, Georgia, and when my parents would drive to Atlanta to see my brothers, they would always pack a lunch. And what I remember most about the lunch 
was that my mother, she was going to fry some chicken and she was going to bake a cake and she was going to have potato salad and everything was packed inside a shoebox. And I don't know why the fried chicken in the shoebox was the best fried chicken ever. It was something about that chicken in the shoebox. Well, as a kid, you don't really understand why this was necessary. All you knew was that you were going to eat good on the ride from Crawfordville to Atlanta, which at that time, this was before Interstate I-20, Old Highway 78 was the route to Atlanta from Crawfordville and back, of course. And, and so each and every time, they'd pack a lunch. And it only dawned on me after I got older was that there was no place for them to stop between Crawfordville and Atlanta. Or there wasn't a place that they felt comfortable in stopping. My parents, at an early age, taught me what they called, or what I would now call, survival skills. They basically tried to equip you with everything you needed in the event that you were stopped by police, what to do, what not to do. And again, as a child, it doesn't always make sense. But what was most important to them was that their child, no matter what the circumstances might have been, that their child came back home alive. Even if it meant a feeling of being disrespected, they didn't care about the disrespect. You did the things that were necessary so that you would come back to them alive. And the story of Porter Moss just simply reminds me of that travel that we took from Crawfordville to Atlanta with the chicken in the shoebox. If you enjoyed these stories and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Diamonds is also available on the SXM app, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap podcast. For more information on the Negro Leagues and the legends of the game, please check out our website, nlbm.com and follow us on Twitter at NLB Museum KC. Black Diamonds is part of the Sirius XM Podcast Network and is hosted by me, Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Additional voiceovers provided by Darnio Samuels. Editing and sound design by Rob Moore. Special thanks to Sirius XM's Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and Vice President of Sports Programming, Chris Eno. Sirius XM Podcasts.